Hello and welcome to the podcast for Christ Community Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. This is the message given on Sunday morning, August 27th by Tom Job from the Gospel of John in chapter 5. But So this is from John chapter 5. It says this, and sometime later, Jesus went to Jerusalem to one of the Jewish festivals. And this was There was in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. There, I think this was discovered in the, I believe the 1850s, they discovered this this pool. It's right on the north side of the temple, where the temple used to be in Jerusalem. And here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And one who had been there, an invalid, for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in that condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I mean, what a weird question. Do you want to get well? I mean, hello. I have no one to, to help me, but sometimes, I don't know. I have no one to help me into the pool when the water stirred. And when I try to get in, someone else goes in before me. And Jesus said, get up, take your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured and he picked up his mat and walked. And the day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it's a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. And he replied, the man who made me well said to me, take up your mat and walk. And then it said later on, Jesus found him in the temple and said, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Like maybe something worse than getting healed. I mean, it's weird. Lord God, we love you. Help us to understand this. Help us to understand what was going on in this person's mind and brain. And that it might be something, that there might be something different going on in ours. In Jesus' name, amen. So one thing I've been reading about lately is that a lot of people, people have been saying that like faith and Christianity, you can't really reduce it to like a simple formula, but there are simple formulas that have been very important. And I would like, I was reading the other day about E equals MC squared and the theory of relativity. And a guy said, when Albert Einstein thought of it, it was the greatest pronouncement in the history of human thought. So I was trying to understand it. And they have, on YouTube, there's this kid, he's like 14, and he has a series of talks that he does on, like in 15 minutes on very complicated subjects, and it's like for dummies. And so he was explaining in fifth, this 14-year-old kid, the theory of relativity for dummies. And I watched it about three times, and I thought, you know, you're going to need to talk to people a little bit dumber than that, <laughs> a little bit dumber than that, but because I, I didn't really understand it. But he said it was something like, it was like if you're on a sailing ship, up in a up in the the like the basket at the top of the sail, 
and it's on at the dock and you drop a cannonball, it takes a certain amount of time for it to fall. But if the ship is on the ocean and it's going as fast as it can go and you drop the cannonball, it will take the same amount of time for it to hit the, the deck. And if it goes through, it will take a certain amount of time for the ship to sink. But, it, it, but to hit the deck, but because it's going this way, in that same amount of time, the ball's going faster. And um, what that means is that time is flexible. And what that means is, like Triple C, like we start at 1045. That has never happened, like in the history of Triple C, like in 20, more than 20 years, but it doesn't really matter that much. And they, but no, but they were talking about how, like, there's little, in your molecules, there's little things called quantums, and they're going at the speed of light. And if you go up in space and you're going the speed of light, it's kind of like that chicken joke where, they can't get to the other side because they're like going the speed of light, but you're going the speed of light. And if you're up there for 10 years and you come back, the, the, the reason they call it the theory of relativity is you didn't get old and you're gonna be younger than all your relatives, like all your cousins and, and stuff. So there's probably a physicist in here who is thinking, I cannot listen to this anymore. But so I'm done with that. But I do want, I wanted to talk about, this is a formula that I've always loved. And it's been, it's kind of a formula for human change. Like how does a person change? And you think, isn't there, you know, isn't there something like, if you think, isn't there something about me? And this works for, gosh, it works for marriages. It works for recovery. It works for so many different things, but how does a human, what, is there a formula for human change? And I've found one, I like it a lot, but um, you th isn't there something that you need to change? Like, isn't there something that you would like to change? Isn't there something that I think I should change? Or isn't there something that I wish I could change? Or don't you have, maybe there's something about you, like maybe it's something hurtful, or maybe it's something hateful, or maybe it's some, maybe it's a secret that you have that you're like, I wish I could change that. Or maybe, maybe it's that thing where it's only a secret to you, but everybody knows you need to change it. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's, like if you ever had a suspicion and you ask somebody, hey, do you think I'm a control freak? And they would say, yes, Melton, yes, yes. Everybody knows it. You're such a control. Really? Yeah, but, but one of those things. So, okay, so here's my formula. You might want to write it down. But it's, it's a D plus V plus FS must be greater than R. And what that stands for is dissatisfaction. D stands for dissatisfaction. Like, I am dissatisfied with the present situation. Like, there's this thing in my life, and I'm really kind of, it's not, I'm, I'm not happy about it. I don't really like it anymore, and I'm sick of it. And so I'm dissatisfied with it. Plus, V means a vision for what it could be. I know what my life could be like. I know how much better it would be if I didn't have this. I've seen it in other people. And so um, I, I want something more than this. Plus, FS, which stands for first steps. What are you willing to do about it? Like, what are you willing to change about it? Usually it involves admitting the truth about it. It involves asking someone to help you. It involves agreeing to do what they tell you to do when you find out what you're supposed to do or stop doing. But um, what would you be willing to do about it? So dissatisfaction with 
the present situation, a vision for what it could be, willing to take first steps, must be greater than R, which stands for, and is sometimes immense in people, but it stands for resistance to change. I don't really all that interested in changing that. So if you think about marriage, like let's say there's a couple and they're just, their marriage is like, they're just kind of like, we're just not happy with it. We're kind of sick the way of the way it is. We always, we always yell at each other. We're always screaming. And when we're not yelling and screaming, we don't really talk to each other. And I, this one woman, she found out that her marriage was worse, really worse than she thought it was because she walked in on her six, her six-year-old daughter in her bedroom who was playing um, Ken and Barbie get married. And the little girl was just saying to Ken, okay, Ken, it's time for you to say your promises. Turn to Barbie and say, after me, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to have a lawyer present. You may kiss the bride. You know, I remember this one couple there. Uh, their marriage had just gotten so awful. I mean, it just all the romance was gone from it. So on their anniversary, he didn't know what to get her. So he decided to get them his and her cemetery plots. And she was like, really for our anniversary? And then the next year, he didn't get her anything. And she's like, you didn't get me anything for our anniversary. He said, you didn't use what I got you last year. So, the, <laughs> but, um, but so, and then so you think vision. So what could it be? Like, what would, what would we like for our marriage to be? What would we, that we're not really happy with the way it is. What would we like for it to be? And you know, what's the vision that we have? And sometimes if you read Christian books, if people read too many of those, then they'll wind up saying, we would like, um, how do you say this? A, a greater commitment, a stronger covenant, clearer communication. And it's like, no, 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 I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about that stuff. What would you want? Like if it was Christmas, what would you want for your marriage? Just think about it. I wish we laughed more. There you go. I wish we laughed more. I wish our marriage was more fun. I wish it had more PDAs, which stands for public displays of affection. It also stands for private displays of affection. It's like, yeah, yeah, more of those. I wish we, I wish we, had, wish we had more of those. And then just, uh, you know, just a vision of what, I mean, you know, we could be a, we could be happy and, um, you know, maybe like we used to be or maybe like other people are. And what, what would you be willing to do about it? Like what, what steps would you be willing to take? I remember reading us, there was a, a sociologist. Well, this well, one guy that I really love, who's like one of the leading experts in America, marriage on, in, in America on marriages, he's 85 years old, but he said, but um, he's not a Christian, but he said, um, he said, couples that are happy, um, the reason that they're happy is because they're kind to each other. He said, they say and do small things in the course of the day that communicate to their mate that they cherish their mate and they cherish their friendship. And uh, there was one woman who's a sociologist and she, was studied, she studied thousands of marriages across the United States and she had a matrix and she, she was able to determine whether a marriage was happy or unhappy, very unhappy or very happy. And she, and she whether people, it was people who knew Jesus and people who didn't, it didn't really matter. But she said, um, couples who were very happy, she would ask them and she said, said, okay, you guys scored a very happy marriage. What is the secret of being very happy? And they would always say something and she realized they were making it up because they didn't know the answer to it. And the reason is because couples that are very happy, the things that they do to be very happy are so small, they don't even know they do them, but they all do them. So, um, and it, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of, I mean, you know, Christian marriage, <clears throat> 
I know what people mean by that, but in a certain sense, there's really no such thing. It's kind of like talking about Christian cooking. There's no such thing as Christian cooking. It's either good or bad. And if like, so marriage, it's like if people know Jesus and they don't do the things that you have to do to be happy, they won't be happy. And if people who don't know Jesus do the things you have to do to be happy, they'll be happy. So, you know, and it's just like, but, you know, what would you be willing to do about it? And um, that has to be, you have to be so sick of the way it is that you just want more. Like that has to be greater than resistance to change, which some people are like, we're just used to it. We just don't, we just want to leave it alone. It's just, you know, which is so sad. I mean, I just feel like, I just feel like if you're going to be good at anything in the world in your life, give everything you can to be good at your marriage and to be kind in it. But... You know, so it's a formula that works for, um, like, for people in for people in recovery, like for people that are in alcohol or drug recovery, like dissatisfaction with the present situation, plus a vision for what it could be, plus being willing to make first steps, to admit the truth, ask for help, agree to do what they say, must be greater than resistance to change. So one of my favorite, so one of the people that has been really, really. Um, just enriched my life in the last 15 years. He's been with Jesus now for probably, I think, five years. But um, his name was Spence, Spence Ferguson. And Spence, he died, I guess, when he was about 85 years old. But he was in, I think, before he died, he got his 40th year chip in Alcoholics Anonymous. And Spence actually started the AA meeting down here. One time he said, Thomas, he used to call me Thomas. Thomas, guess who came by to see me today? He had a little workshop right across from the AA meeting house. And I said, who, Spence? And he said, Governor Haslam. And I said, Governor Haslam? And he said, yeah, he was traveling through Oak Ridge with a guy. And a guy said, you want to meet the person who knows more about um, alcoholism and alcohol dependency than anybody you've ever met? And so uh, he went by to see him. There was a guy who wrote a book um, a book one time, a guy named Keith Miller, and he wrote a book called A Taste of New Wine. And it, it was in Christianity Today, I think it was in one of the, the top 50 most important books of the last 100 years. And they, and they said Keith Miller was basically res- solely responsible for the small group movement in American evangelicalism. And it was because he had had experience in AA, and he's like, why don't they do this in church? And I came in here one Sunday, and he was sitting right there where Barry is, right where Barry Bingham was sitting. And I said, are you Keith Miller? And he said, how do you know? And I said, I've read all your books. Like, I would, I've, I would recognize you anywhere. What are you doing here? And he said, well, I have a friend that goes here who's helped me a lot in my life. And I said, who? And he said, Spence Ferguson. And I knew, that, I knew that's who it was. We used to go around, Spence and I would go around. He, about 15, 13, 14 years ago, I used to have a Bible study in the Anderson County Jail. And Spence started going with me. And when we would introduce ourselves, he'd say, I'm Spence and I'm an alcoholic. And I, I didn't quite know how to say, OK, Spence, this is not exactly that. But um, I, you know, he, just, he just would. But we were in, Spence and I were involved with about three different um, organizational meetings of churches that wanted to do outreach for people in recovery. 
And they would invite us to come to, we got to be kind of a team, and they would invite us, and that meeting would always split and end after the very first meeting. And the reason is because we would introduce ourselves and the people from the different churches and stuff, and Spence would always say, I'm Spence Ferguson, I'm an alcoholic. And they would always say, no, 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 no. No, you're not supposed to say that. You're not an alcoholic. Now you're not. You're not defined by your past. You're not defined by your sin. You're a new creature in Christ. And Spence would explain to them, I know that. I know all of that. I know I've been born again. I know I'm a new creature in Christ, but I have the kind of brain that if I would take a drink today, I would be dead in three weeks. And because he had friends who were. You know, but we, sometimes we would go, whenever we would go out on the street, like, or we were just around town, and somebody would always come up to Spence, and they would say, Spence, do you remember me? And they would start to cry, and he would say, I'm not really sure. And he said, uh, and they would say, you sponsored me in 1992, and you saved my life. And Spence would always say, helping you, help me stay sober one more day. But um, he had a lot of sayings that he, they were great. Uh, expectations are premeditated resentment. You need to ask for help because my best thinking got me here. You, you have one thing, one of my favorites was self-pity is for somebody who's in alcohol, like in alcohol rehab, their worst enemy is self-pity because Spence said self-pity says, poor me, poor me, pour me a drink. And so, but, um, but um, one thing that people would often say is that like you have to get to a place like when you think about the D, like the dissatisfaction, a person has to get to a place where they're dissatisfied, like I can't do this anymore, like this is, and they would always talk about you have to hit bottom, for, but for every person it's different. And the way Spence would say it is the elevator's going down and you get to decide what floor you're gonna get off on. But the way some people would say it is you have to remember that everybody's bottom is different. And I would say, okay, well, you need to think of really kind of another way to say that because like, <laughs> I guess it's true, but but there was one guy, a guy named Ted, who used to he was he would go to the other unit at the at the jail, but he was like 80-something and he was an AA. And he would say, everybody has to get to the place where they touch their own bottom. And I said, okay, Ted, I know what you mean by that, but you need to think for 20 more seconds and just tweak that, tweak that just a little bit. But just getting to a place where, you know, I'm just, I can't do this anymore. I'm, I'm just super, super dissatisfied. And I have a vision. I do have a vision for what my life could be because I've seen it in other people and I've seen him do it. And I'm willing to take the first steps and do what I need to do. Uh, though I was talking to somebody, uh, well, I mean, well, there are people like, even with people who get stuck in porn, you know, it's just like, it's a great formula because like if they get to a place where they feel kind of trapped and then you think about what, about the D, like they're dissatisfied. And I mean, I've had people ask me in the, in the past, they would say, okay, so I'm struggling with that a little bit. Would you be an accountability partner? And I always say, no, no. No, I'm not doing that. I'm not gonna be a cop to you. I'm not gonna be, I'm not gonna police your life. If you want a friend, I'll be a friend. And if you want somebody to talk to about it, I'll talk to you about it. And if you want, if you're gonna need to tell people when you mess up, you can tell me. So I remember, I remember once a guy told me that he said, uh, well, um, okay, I need to talk to you. So I messed up, I messed up. And, and I said, how, how was it? Was it amazing? 
He said, no, no, it was not amazing. It made me feel like cred. So I asked him a question because we had been talking about justification by faith. And like, so when you believe in Jesus, you're forgiven of everything you've ever done, do or will do. And you're declared righteous in the sight of God. So I said, okay, so after you did this, were you still justified? And he was like, is this a trick question? I said, no, no. Like, were you, were, are you declared righteous in the sight of God once and forever? And he said, I guess so. And I said, so when you were doing it, while you were doing it, while you were messing up, were you justified? And he said, were you righteous in the sight of God while you were doing that? And he said, I guess so, because I'm declared righteous, right? It's because of Jesus, right? I said, yes. So after you did that, how was it? Was it awesome? He said, no, it was not awesome. It made me feel like crud. I feel, it made me feel terrible for days and days and days. I said, okay, you need to remember that because it is always going to be this way. It's never going to be amazing. It's always going to make you feel terrible and miserable. And you're, the choice you have is how, because God is going to win the struggle that he's having with you, and you just get to decide how long you're going to be miserable. So, the, but, um, so when, uh, and I said, and okay, let me tell you why that is. The reason is because you're justified and because you do belong to God. But the re hey, let me tell you why it always makes you miserable and it will always make you miserable. And he said, okay, tell me. And I said, okay, so there's a verse that you know. Tell me the end of it. Okay, it's John 15, 1. I am the vine. How does that go? And he said, you're the branches. I said, no. That is John 15, 4. Everybody always forgets John 15, 1. I am the vine, my father is the vine dresser. When they have those grapevines, they, okay, so we used to live where they did a bunch of that stuff in Italy. They only want two branches going this way, a branch from the last year and a branch from this year, and a branch, two branches going this way from the last year and from this year. Anything else that grows on it, they pinch it off because they don't want it. The reason it makes you feel miserable is because God is pinching it. He doesn't want it he, because he's love because he loves you and he doesn't want you thinking about people like they're commodities and he's just he's just not gonna have it but I mean it's it's just it's a formula that works for everything like it works for like even a person's um oh gosh I remember I remember there was there was uh, there was one woman and uh it's just like when, a, to get to a point where you're just, I'm just not happy with this anymore. And I want more. There, there was a woman who, she was a big executive a, in Christian publishing in Colorado Springs. And I read a book she wrote and she was an alcoholic. She, like she was, and it was kind of amazing. Like, how do you pull this off? Like, you know, it was so complicated how she did it all. But, but then her, then all fell apart and she, and she had to admit that she was powerless over alcohol and her life had become unmanageable and she went to alcohol rehab. And then she went to AA meetings and she was sponsoring a young girl named Nicole. And they really, really got close. And then one day, Nicole, um, Nicole began to be suspicious that her sponsor was thinking and, sus and suspecting that maybe Nicole was drinking again. And she resented it. And she told her, Heather, I resent the fact that you think I'm drinking again. And Heather said, okay, Nicole, look me in the eyes and tell me you're not. And she said, dang it, 
why did you have to say look you in the eyes? She said, she said Heather, are, are you mad at me? She said, no, I'm not mad at you. I just have a question. Nicole, what do you want? And she said, why do you ask me that question? My therapist always asks me that question. What do you want in life? And she said, because it's a good question, Nicole. What do you want? And Nicole said, I want to be sober. And Heather said, I know you do. But Nicole, you don't want it bad enough. She said, I love you, Nicole. And Nicole said, love you. And Heather knew she was saying goodbye. And she said, I had to let her go. But, you know, like you think about like your life, your spiritual life with Jesus. It's kind of boring. I don't really get much out of it. It's just my walk with Jesus. I don't know what. It's just, it's kind of boring. I'm not really happy with it. I'm kind of dissatisfied. And I have a V. I have a vision. I want, to, I, want I, I see it in other people. They seem to have something I don't. I want to be happy. I'm not happy. The, some, I've, when I became a Christian, people would say in churches, they used to always say, God doesn't care how happy you are. He cares about how holy you are. That is the dumbest thing ever. I mean, like, so in John 15, Jesus said, I'm telling you things so that my joy can be in you. And so the, because he takes care of the holiness part. He does that on his own. But he, I'm telling you this, that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. Paul said to the Philippians, I, I'd really rather die. I'm in prison and they may kill me. I'd really prefer that because I get to go to heaven. But I know I've got other work to do. In fact, I, I've got to work on y'all's progress in the faith and your joy. The reason I don't go to heaven is y'all just aren't happy enough. So I'm going to be working on that. There's a, a place in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, where there was a bunch of people spending a morning together doing some stuff. And they, it just kind of got to them all, and they all started crying, and they were just all bawling, crying. And Ezra stood up and said, Stop crying. This is not a day for crying. This is a day for feasting. It's a day for joy because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the guy that I really love in a book, he said, If the joy of the Lord is your strength, it means that if you're not joyful, you're weak. So, um, a person, I just, I want more. If Jesus, if Jesus is offering joy, I want it. If Jesus is offering peace, I want it. If Jesus would offer me an experience of knowing the love of God, I want it. I want all the things. I want all the things. There, so there was this guy who had been, he was a paraplegic, and he went to this pool on, it was on the north part of the temple. And for 38 years, I mean, he couldn't walk, and people would carry him there, and he would just ask people for money all day. And so Jesus walked up to, just walked past everybody else and walked right up to him and said, do you want to be healed? Do you want it? Do you really want this? And it was just kind of like, why would you ask that question? Well, it's a question. How much would you really want it? How much do you really want different? How much do you want more? It's like, well, his D was, um, I can't walk and people carry me everywhere. My vision is it would be awesome to walk and, have, and not have to have people carrying me everywhere. Then Jesus is going to be able to take care of all of it. It just kind of depended on the R, resistance to change, which would be, does that mean people aren't going to be carrying me around anymore? I, you know, I might be a little, a little bit used to it. But I think one of the biggest problems that he had 
what this is in John chapter five, he didn't have a huge vision of what Jesus could do for him. Because up to this point, this was before Jesus called, this was all before Mark chapter one, when Jesus called his first guys to quit their job and follow him full time. And then he became an explosion of miracles. Up until this point, Jesus had only done, as far as I can count, uh, two. Two, one, yeah, two. So um, he didn't fully understand that not only, so Jesus had told, not only could he give him new legs, just like he told a guy two chapters before this, he could give him a new start. And just like he told a woman the chapter right before this, he could give this man a new heart that he could, because of Jesus coming into his life, he could be a person that nobody in this world could be but him. He could do things that nobody in this world could do but him. He could have a joy that nobody in the world would have exactly like him so that people would look at him and say, I want to be like you. He could, he, he, Jesus made Peter walk on the waves. He made Paul sing in prison. He made Stephen pray for people who were killing him while they were killing him. That he, Jesus could give a person a joy, Paul says, that passes all understanding. He could have it. He could have a peace that passes all understanding. He could have a joy beyond the ability to express it. And he could know the love of God that passes all knowledge. If he wanted, he could have had all the things. So there's a guy, just almost like him, just like him, in Acts chapter 3. And this guy's like, I don't know. I don't know if I really want to change all that much. There was a guy in Acts chapter 3 who was also a paralytic. But he stayed right around the corner of the temple on a place called Solomon's Porch. And he would go there and beg for money. And one day, Peter and John, and this was after Jesus was risen from the dead, walked by. And I believe when he looked at them, he said, there they are. There those two guys are. And Peter looked down at him and said, silver and gold I don't have, but in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And he was like, yes, yes. And he jumped up and it said he was jumping up and down and he was just dancing around. Like he could not only walk, he could dance and he was dancing. And he was like so excited. And then, and then Peter explained that he did it in the name of Jesus and he got arrested for saying it. And they spent the night in jail. And the next morning when they were put on trial, it said that he said, it was because Jesus helped me do this miracle. And the people said they couldn't really deny it because they could tell that Peter and John had been with Jesus. And also because the man that he had healed was standing right beside him. I think he spent the night in jail with him. I just think he just kept on dancing. Like he was so excited. And I think it was because he had a huge vision for what Jesus could do for him. Because do you remember in John chapter eight when they caught that woman who was having, having an affair with that guy? And this was before the sun came up and it says that they took her to Jesus and they knew exactly where he would be. He was at the temple 
And he would go there before the sun come up, came up, and he would teach people all kinds of things. And in John chapter 10, we find out that where he used to go and teach was Solomon's porch. And I just think that he must have been sitting there listening to Jesus talk about, in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. What if I could follow him? What if I could walk? I would follow him and I give them eternal life. What if I could have a new start? What if I could have a new heart? What if I could know a life different than this life? What if I could know a joy inexpressible and full of glory? What if I could have a peace that passes all understanding? What if I could know the love of God that passes knowledge? Solomon's porch is where people who had found those things after Jesus was risen from the dead would go and meet, and he would sit there and think, what if I could be like them? What if I could have more? What if I could have more than the life I have? What if I could have joy? What if I could have peace? What if I could know love? You can, you can, you can, but you have to want more. Don't you want it? He died and rose again. I mean, there's steps you need to take and there's stuff you need to do. But first of all, you got to want more. I do. I want to be as happy in this world as I can possibly be because I don't like to not. So, um, so we're going to sing a song right now. And it's a song that our brothers and sisters in Christ say every Sunday. This is what Christians believe. It's called the Apostles' Creed. But what if you were going to, what if you sang the Apostles' Creed? What if you sang it like you really were excited about it? That's what we're about to do. Lord God, I do. I do pray for someone. Maybe there's somebody here today who feels like I'm not satisfied with the walk that I have. I'm not satisfied. I do, there are things that I want to change in my life. There are, I do want some changes, but mostly because I want more. I want the joy of Jesus. I want peace. I don't want to be anxious anymore. I want to know that I'm loved. I want all the things, even as they're saying it, even as they're wanting it. Would you fill their hearts with it? You died and rose again so that we could have. In your precious name, amen. All right, let's sing out. Here we go. I want to pour out my heart. Lord, I want to risk it all. No holding back from the start. I'm not afraid to fall. You fill my life with love. The way you care for me. So I set my heart above and give you everything.
Give me the love to say 